Well, it's appropriate that uh, we had All Saints Day because today we're going to look at three saints, actually, um, who are recorded in the book of Hebrews, um, who were able to extinguish the fire by their faith. It's an interesting phrase, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a well-known story, a very famous story. Uh, it's, it's actually well-known in broader culture. You know, Louis Armstrong talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we, you know, you've got uh, people like uh, the Beastie Boys, I mean, all kinds of people, Johnny Cash, Bob Marley, they sing about these guys. Uh, it's in To Kill a Mockingbird, it's, uh, it's uh, in the letter, to Birmingham, uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, and et cetera. So, so then the question is like, why? You know, why is this captured so much of the broader imagination? And I think some of it's just because it's a great Sunday school lesson, right? I mean, the story kind of carries its own. It's got this tension that builds. There's this decree, and then, and then the three are found out, and they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar in this kind of, you know, heated exchange at the, at the pinnacle of the story. And then you see how that kind of works itself out, right? And so it, it grabs our imagination. And it's also this kind of David and Goliath story. You know, on one hand, you know, in this corner, you know, uh, weighing in at 20 tons of gold in the statue is, you know, the most powerful man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, who clearly has everybody, the satraps and the prefects and, you know, that big list. He's got everybody under his thumb. And then over here, we've got, you know, three youths, uh, really, that have uh, been captured. They're from a conquered, unknown province uh, and they're completely at the mercy of this guy. And so it's a David Goliath kind of story, and it, it's a complete mismatch, right? It's a mismatch. And as I said before, the climax of the show, uh, showdown reaches in this face-to-face -face exchange. Face-to-face -face exchange. Awesome. You are, Tammy, you are on it today. Awesome. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar states unequivocally, look, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. So it's a really simple, it's like, I mean, we've all had these conversations with preschoolers, right? Like you're either going to eat your veggies or you're going to have a timeout. But it's on a much larger scale, okay? <laughs> you will either join with everybody else and bow to the image or you will go into this furnace, which they had back then to make bricks, probably the same bricks that probably helped construct the statue, which was then overlaid by gold. Um, very interesting little point there. So, so what's amazing here is their response. Their response to me is, I mean, I read this story about a year ago uh, when I was reading through the Bible. And when I read their response, it just nailed me. And when you're going to prepare a sermon, my advice is go with where God's already been working in your heart, right? And so this, this text is so rich, but I really want to focus in this morning on their response. I love this. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will rescue us from your majesty's hand. But if not, that's the Hebrew. It's very simple. But even if he does not, but if not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There you have it. There you have it. Some of the most powerful words in the Bible. I mean, you can kind of hear the echo of Martin Luther, you know, when he, when he nailed his 95 theses and said, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Maybe a little bit of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, you can hear this kind of echo through history, this kind of resolve. But this morning... Wow, see, it's, it's magical. The bells ring. <laughs> Daylight saving time, all right. <laughs> Note to self, turn off the bells. Um, 
We can all give Alvar the stink eye. All right. Um, <laughs> sorry, Alvar. He's great. He does everything right. All right, all right. Okay. You know, so, so I have, here's my, this is my argument this morning. My argument is not only that these words serve as the hinge point of the story, but actually they echo the very hinge point of the Bible. And in order to show you that, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three different vantage points. Uh, this, we're going to look at the statement from three different vantage points. First, we're going to look at the context of this statement, what comes before the statement. Then we're going to look at the essence of the statement. We're going to kind of drill down into it and see what they're really saying by, by these powerful words. And then finally, we're going to look at the results of this statement. So there you go. You know, we're Trinitarians. We have three-point messages. That's the way it works around here. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, three is a good number. All right. So that's what we're going to do. So first, let's take a look at the context of this very pronounced statement. The context of this statement. The context is the great city of Babylon. Babylon was one of the greatest empires in human history. Babylon was a, it was a juggernaut of the ancient world. It just captured so many peoples and nations. It just swallowed them up. And you can see on the screen here, this is actually a, a rendition or artist rendition of Babylon. But actually, if you actually go to Babylon, there's still an incredible number of, of uh, you know, you can just see all the ruins there. It's just incredible how much it still survives. Um, and um, Babylon was, was uh, an expert at this certain strategy. When it would conquer people, its strategy was um, subjugation by assimilation subjugation by assimilation. So what it would do is when it would capture a people, it would take the brightest and the best, and it would just drain those people, and it would bring them to Babylon, and then it would begin this cultural assimilation process. Um, and the book of Daniel is about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For some reason, we use their uh, Babylonian names, but Daniel gets to keep his Hebrew name. I don't know why that is. But anyways, Daniel and his three friends. And, um, and it's about them being brought to Babylon to be a part of this subjugation by assimilation program. Um, and, and this story today is another one of these subjugation by assimilation program methodologies that has come up. You know, the book of Daniel um, gives us uh, lots of things that they're doing. They're, they're changing their diet, they're changing their names, and now they're, they're going to do something else. And, and we see that uh, what's happened, here's, the, here's what's going to happen, is they build this giant colossus, okay? Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant colossus. It's a giant statue. And this was not unusual in the ancient world, all right? Here we have three of them. We've got uh, the, the Colossus of Rhodes. Uh, there we've got Ramses II. You can still, that's actually just a reproduction, but you can still drive by that in, in Cairo. Um, and, and to the right, you can see, or uh, to your left, uh, yeah, um, you can see uh, that giant colossus is actually um, uh, uh, a colossus of Nero, where we get the word Colosseum, because that colossus stood by the Colosseum, okay? Um, and it's gone now. But, um, and so this was, this was an uncommon. But Nebuchadnezzar has a plan. And here's his plan. He is going to build a giant statue, which wasn't unusual. And he is going to use that for a very kind of fast-track assimilation, He's going to get all of those who have authority, okay, and he's going to bring them all in line very quickly. And by the way, when you hear the echo of not only all those different peoples, you know, the, the, the satraps and the, you know, the prefects and the judges and all that stuff, that's to give you a sense of that everybody who is anybody is there. And it's also echoed in the instruments. All these different instruments, all these different instruments are from different parts of the ancient world. And just like you're going to get all those instruments to play together in a unified tune 
You're going to get all these people to come together into a unified confession. You see how it's mirroring each other? So this is his plan. And this is what he says. People of all races and all nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and other instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, we need to look at what's happening here. See, as a result of this conquest, Nebuchadnezzar realizes he's got a pluralist society. He's got people, and he's acknowledging it here, he's got people from lots of different uh, regions and languages and cultures and religions. And, and so uh, the diversity there is something that he actually is willing to acknowledge. But his strategy is not to deny all the diversity he has. His strategy is very interesting. What he's saying in effect is, is that I will acknowledge your diversity. I will acknowledge that you're from different races and tribes and tongues and, and particularly cultures and religions. He says, but when it comes to um, my kingdom, publicly, you need to look very Babylonian. Publicly, when you're, it comes to my kingdom, we need to be on the same page in terms of Babylonian culture and Babylonian values and ultimately Babylonian religion. And so what's happening here is he's basically saying, you can do whatever you want and be whoever you want in private, but when it comes to public life in my kingdom, you need to basically step in line. You need to play the same tune. You need to be just like everybody else. And so there's a private public division here. And this, and this is not unusual. You know, this happens not only uh, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's empire, this happens in families sometimes, it happens in, in corporations, it happens in schools, where the idea is like, well, you know, you can, you can have whatever religious beliefs you have in private, but when it comes to public here, you need to leave that at the door. You know, maybe you're a part of a business where it's a cutthroat business. And the expectation is, is that you are going to fib a little bit. You're going to manipulate. You're going to push. You're going to pull. And that's just the culture of our business. And that's the way we get things done here. And it's fine if you want to go to church on Sunday. But Monday through Friday, this is how we conduct business. Do you see what's happening? You need to bow. You need to bow to the image. So uh, this, is the, this, is, this is also a temptation of all pluralist societies. Plural societies have a temptation to somehow evoke some kind of uniformity. Uh, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and by the way, remember, they're in the middle of Babylon. They're not only in the middle of Babylon, they're already on this, uh, they're in a place of authority, and they are fulfilling Jeremiah 29.7 to seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I've carried you into exile. But they put their foot down. They're not willing to privatize their faith. They're not willing to say, you know, when I show up into this space, I just leave my faith behind. They're not willing to do it. And there's something deeper going on for them of why they're not willing to do it. And it isn't just that they want to reject the privatization of their faith. And we need to look a little deeper at the statue to see why they won't do this. Do this. So let's, th let's think about the statue for a second. Look at the statue. What is this thing? You know, the text tells us that it's 60 cubits by 6 cubits. You know, again, why do, why do we always, translators, you know, they, they just leave the cubits in there. Is anybody going by cubits these days? I'm just, I'm just curious. My guess is, is that a cubit was pretty much from the elbow 
to the tip of the finger there. And people have different distances there. But generally speaking, it's about, it's about a, a foot and a half. So this was about a 90-foot high statue and a 9-foot wide statue, which is actually a pretty narrow statue. Um, uh, Herodotus reports of a giant gold statue in Babylon that weighed 20, that had 22 tons of gold uh, that was used to make it. Um, so the question is, what is the statue of? Well, the, the, there's two views. One is that it's Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, some believe that this is the statue of Nebuchadnezzar II. Okay, that's the, that's the Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel, right? And there he is, you know. Uh, they liked beards back then. You'd be good, Ryan. Um, and uh, so some people, this is him. And, and some people believe that what's happened is, in Daniel chapter 2, remember there was this uh, vision, that there was this dream that there was this head of gold, right? And then there was these other elements. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is identified with that head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar maybe doesn't like that dream, or maybe he wants to, you know, re-spin the dream, and he's going to build a whole statue where he's the whole thing. All right, so maybe, maybe if it's Nebuchadnezzar, then maybe this is him rejecting the limitations of his reign. Okay, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that it is of Marduk, who is the highest god in the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, in fact, Herodotus reports that the gold statue in Babylon is of Bel, which means Lord, and Bel is a title that's used particularly for Marduk. Bel is just kind of a more general uh, kind of like name for God in the Assyrian world, and Marduk was, was particularly connected with the word Bel. And Bel actually uh, is where we get the word belligerent, okay? Because Marduk is an aggressive, violent God. He rises through the pantheon, and there you can see him. So uh, he is slaying uh, Tiamat, who is the sea monster, okay? So some people think this is Marduk, and Marduk is a God that wins, Marduk is a god that gets things done through his violence, through his power. He's unstoppable, and he is a winning god, and he brings everybody into his control. So some people think it's Marduk, um, and uh, we, I mean, we could totally nerd out right now. I, I would nerd out right now. If I had the whole morning right now, I'd totally go into the mythology. It's super fascinating. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, was a, a devotee of Marduk. He wrote Psalms, just like we have the Psalms of David. He wrote Psalms to Marduk. They are very disturbing. But he was into Marduk. He was, he was a serious devotee of Marduk, okay? Um, and in fact, if it is Marduk, there seems to be scriptural support for it because they bring uh, the three before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, they have defied your majesty by refusing to serve your gods or to worship the gold statue you have set up. And so there appears to be a parallel between serving and worshiping between the gods and the gold statue. So maybe this is Marduk, who would be the head of all the gods, right? And so that's another idea. But here's the deal. Either way, it's actually, the text doesn't really say, and I think it's because it's kind of a moot point. You know, Marduk is this violent, belligerent god that conquers and enslaves and brings everybody under his control. And guess what Nebuchadnezzar is like? Nebuchadnezzar is this kind of hothead. You see it in the text. He's flying into rages. Everybody will submit. And so they have this, it's a real, he found the right God for himself, right? It's like, it's a, it's a match made in, in purgatory, really. It's great. So now I know we like to read this text is about peer pressure. I mean, after all, VeggieTales, that was their interpretation. And, you know, VeggieTales, that's pretty cool. Um, and and undoubtedly, this is a story about not giving in to peer pressure. And if you're working with a bunch of, of children or students, that, and peer pressure is a big thing, this is probably a great text to go to. But if we just leave it at that level, I think it's a pretty thin reading 
of the story. I think if, and, and here's something about this church that I like, is that this church is abandoned to the text, okay? It's abandoned the text. And I think if we're going to be true to God's word, the immediate context of this story is political theology. That might be a new word for you, all right? Um, but, and, and let me just kind of be clear, uh, I have no interest in preaching a political sermon, much less wade into uh, North American partisan politics. It's not the place for the pulpit, okay? This is a place to teach and preach God's word, but this, you can't miss the fact that this text has political implications, right? Because this statue, the statue represents the visions and dreams of the state, which has taken on religious pretense, now, statues are not new for symbolizing a state's visions and dreams. We have a statue. It's in New York. Okay, don't worship it. Don't bow down to Lady Liberty, okay? <laughs> no one's asking you to. That's good, all right? But do you see what's happening here? These statues always symbolize the highest ideals of the state, of the culture. And this call to bow down to the statue in many ways is where the state is now moving into a terrain where it's taking on a certain kind of religious precedence. A law was passed this summer in Quebec which says if you are a government employee, you cannot wear cross earrings. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just saying I think this is an example of where the state starts moving into terrain that is not its own, okay? Uh, we had a political candidate that said, if churches do not support same-sex marriage, we will tax them. They can choose whether they're going to support it or they're not. Again, I don't want to step into partisan politics, but I do want to recognize something. These are examples where the carrot and stick are in play, where you either, you can enjoy the music, you can be a part of the society, you can bow down and enjoy it. But if you go against this, it's going to be the furnace for you. You're going to lose your tax-exempt status. You're going to lose your job. It's always the carrot and the stick. All right, that's probably the most political thing I'm ever going to say from this pulpit. But this text, it has that kind of ring. And we can't be naive, right? Uh, we can't be naive. So the carrot and the stick is always the way it works. Do what, you're asking, do what we're asking, and you can enjoy the music. If you don't, you're out of a job. You lose your tax-exempt status. Um, and when we see the state positioning itself that way, when it starts encroaching on religious freedoms, be it in Quebec or be it in the crazy case of Nazi Germany, and Quebec is not Nazi Germany, but I'm just saying these are, you know, two ends of a spectrum, right? This kind of activity is as old as Nebuchadnezzar himself. So the merging of Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the statue is further revealed by Nebuchadnezzar's response to their noncompliance. He takes it extremely personal. He takes it extremely personal. And the reason is, is because this statue represents so much of his dreams and his hopes. See, Nebuchadnezzar has projected himself onto that statue. That statue represents himself in so many ways and what he wants and what he desires, right? Um, and, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're not fooled by this, this projection. And why are they not fooled? Well, because they're Hebrews, they're Hebrews, and they've been immersed in the Old Testament, and they know the warnings in the Old Testament. Be careful not to project yourself onto some kind of deity, this project of projection. That's called idolatry, right? Now, the great critics of religion, all right? Freud, Feuerbach, and Marx, there they are. 
Freud got, they all have beards too, Brian. Um, there they are, okay. They, they thought they were so brilliant. They were so insightful. They came up with this crazy new idea. They said, you know what? Religion can be a projection. A projection. It's a wish fulfillment. It's a way in which we, we attempt to, you know, put our highest ideals out there. Hey, good job, guys. Guess what? You're late. You need to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament's all about the problem of religion as projection, right? It's been there for a long time. Deuteronomy 4, 15 to 20 says, therefore watch, your, watch out for yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol and image of any shape. Do not be enticed into bowing down to them. The first two commandments, right? No other God before me. Don't make for yourself a graven image in any form. And, and, and the point is really clear is that, you know, the temptation to project out a God of your own making is not just something that pagans are tempted with. Something we're tempted with, I'm tempted with, we're all tempted with. It's something that comes native. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. We love to create projections of who God is. And Nebuchadnezzar has projected all of his uh, homicidal, you know, <laughs> empire building uh, craziness onto this God that he worships, Marduk. And, the, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not buying it. Now, these projections don't always need to be bad, okay? Uh, a God we can create, uh, it, may, it might be that we're creating God because we want financial security or we want to live some kind of Disney-esque uh, life. Um, uh, and, and, and maybe that's a little bit crazy, but maybe it might just be, you know, we just, we just want intimacy. We don't want to be alone. We don't want, and so we start thinking that God, in a certain sense, uh, is bound to these dreams, and what can happen, and now I'm talking about the psychology of idolatry, what can happen is, is that the, the tail starts to wag the dog, and God is no longer the end, but the means to get what we want. There's this awesome passage in Isaiah 44, where Isaiah talks about um, the guy that makes the idol. He says, there's a carpenter, and the carpenter finds some wood, and says that half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it, he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the fire. You know, it's nice to see the fire and not just feel warm. That's good. From the rest, he makes a God, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me. You are my God. What's the point? The point is that he never stops operating differently. Everything is about him. You see, it can be used as a table, it can be used to warm me, it can be used to look pretty, it can be used to give me security, but he is the center, and that is the nature of idolatry. Idolatry by its very nature is where you become the center. The idol is always formed and fashioned for the person who makes it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can see through this ruse. They know the true God, which makes the gold statue and everyone bowing before it seem ridiculous, seem tawdry, seem silly, seem crazy. So what do they do? Well, this is the part where, you know, and let's face it, no one likes to stand out. And I like to think about, you know, I don't know, I, sometimes I think about Mecca where all those people are bowing, or I think about, you know, some of the giant political parades in history where everyone's doing something. Everyone is bowing down and they are standing there. Now, it's not that they're, it's what they're not doing so much as what they're doing. They refuse to play by the script, and they're standing there. And it must have been a little crazy at that moment. 
right? They're like, here we are. So they don't actually attack the statue. They don't say, okay, you know, we're going to build a, you know, a commando team. We're taking the statue out tonight. They just simply have this kind of nonviolent resistance. They don't start a smear campaign on the statue. Um, they don't take to social media accosting the statue. They just simply refuse to go by the script. Um, so they're accused of insubordination. They're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And this brings us to the statement itself, the essence of the statement. So here we are. This is the climax, right? And again, Nebuchadnezzar is very clear. If you bow down and worship the gold statue I've made, when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, all will be well. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I want to highlight that for a second, because you can read this a couple of different ways. Part of me, you can read is like, what a pompous, pompous man. Who do you think you are? But he's actually got a point. See, he's actually got a point. He has conquered every people group and their particular deities throughout the ancient Near East. These gods were unable to save their people groups. So in many ways, it's a very logical conclusion he has right? It's reasonable. Nebuchadnezzar, by the power of Marduk, has conquered the known world. That is his God. That is the God we are going to worship. Who do you think you are? And your God already lost. Now, this is one of the most disappointing at first verses in the Bible, and then it becomes like the biggest zinger ever. But it starts off like if there was ever a time in the Bible where you want this kind of closing argument from the, you know, from the council, this kind of, you know, Atticus Finch, you know, to kill a mockingbird, kind of like, you know, six minute oration. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, let's go back to the beginning. You know, let's go into the history of it all. Let's get into idolatry and da, 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 da. You know, you're just waiting for it to come. And what do you get? Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves. Wah, wah. Right? <laughs> Great, but then they go on. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. See what they're saying? We believe our God is greater. He can rescue us. He wills to rescue us. And then these three little words, but if not, that's the Hebrew, but if not, but even if he does not, but if not, I read a commentator that said, these were men of principle. No. This is not about them being men of principle. This is about something much more profound. They're saying something so much more profound. They're saying, we love God for God's sake. God is God whether he chooses to interact the way we want God to interact. God is worthy of worship regardless of whether or not he delivers us. God is God, and I am going to love God, not for what God does for me, because God is worthy of all my love and adoration. And when they make this claim, I think it's really profound. You know, Nebuchadnezzar becomes unglued. He, he goes crazy with this claim. It completely baffles him. It's like, what? And why is that? 
I think it's because Nebuchadnezzar can't wrap his head around the logic. Why does he go get so irrational, get the flames going, you know, so hot that his, his strongest men in his army die? It's because this phrase just drives him through the roof. He's lived a life of idolatry and projection in which God is doing his bidding. And suddenly they say, that's not what we're doing. And it's like the addict where somebody finally says, hey, man, enough is enough. They do put their finger exactly on what's going on. They nail it. I've run across people that sometimes say to me, and this, is, this will happen if you're a Christian, they'll say, you know, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. I always think that is this, the weirdest thing. I'm like, wow, so what was it about worshiping the triune God that didn't work? Did you, did you, did you reflect on God's beauty? What, did you have a mental problem when you're doing that? I mean, what were you, you know, were you singing and you couldn't sing? Like, what was it about worshiping God that didn't work? And then you start digging and say, well, you know, I, I went to church, I prayed, I did all the right things. And then someone was sick, I needed a job, my health went bad, and God didn't deliver. Didn't work. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. It was a Nebuchadnezzar approach. Their faith is still a Nebuchadnezzar faith, and God is the winning formula. They're approaching God like Marduk, the one who's going to win the battles for you, and that's why. But the real God is worthy of worship irregardless. And when someone says it didn't work, what they mean is, the thing I really wanted, God couldn't help me get that. See, there's already something that's above God. There's already something that they've placed before God. And this, when they say, but if not, what they mean is, is that we love God for God's own sake. We don't love God because God can get us X, Y, or Z. Recently, I read about a prominent Christian couple who lost their young adult son. And they were interviewed, and the question was, how do you wrestle with God with this? What do you do with this? And they said this. I thought it was profound. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under-the-table deal with him. Like, we'll follow you if you bless us. No, we follow God because we love God. We don't have a quid pro quid. There's this wonderful uh, passage in the Screwtape letters where uh, Screwtape says this, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe in which it seems every trace of him has seemed to have vanished and asks, why have I been forsaken? But then he still obeys. I believe that this is the crux of what it means to be a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was 12, 41 years. And every single person I've seen walk away from the faith could not say, but if not. I've had friends I went through seminary with that have walked away from the faith because they could not say, but if not. When we were thinking about the great saints who've come before me, for us, I was thinking of my youth pastor who walked away from the faith because he could not say, but if not. And every single one of us is going to have to face that question. 
And if you're here today, you probably already have. What happens as a result? Result of that statement? Well, they, they're not spared. They go into the fire. It must have been terrifying. They're bound. They're tied up. I mean, these furnaces were just in, incredible. And it was horrifying. But here's the thing. Their faith made them fireproof. Their faith made them fireproof. Not a hair on their head was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell the smoke. Isaiah 43 says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. They were, they were fireproof back when they made that claim. The reason Nebuchadnezzar went crazy is because by saying, but if not, they became fireproof. They were no longer operating on the quid pro quid logic of idolatry. They were worshiping the true God and they were abandoned to God. And as a result, they could make it through the fire. But there's something else. I love it. There's a fourth man that shows up in that flame. Scripture says, but suddenly as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisor, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, they said, we did. Indeed, your majesty. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire. They aren't even hurt by the flames. And the fourth looks like a divine being. There's these instances in the Old Testament, they're called theophanies, where God has a physical manifestation, shows up with a physical manifestation. And every single one of these gives us a picture of Jesus Christ because the ultimate physical manifestation is when God came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that if we say, but if not, and it hurts, and we are thrown into the flame of whatever that is, whether we lose our health, we can't find work, whether or not our marriage is not safe, whatever it is that we're crying out for, you know what? There will be one who will walk beside you, who will go with you as you say, but if not. And I love Nebuchadnezzar's confession of faith. He goes from denying God to this profound confession of faith. Look what he says. No other God can save like this. The whole story of the Bible really can be understood in terms of people that are confronting situations where they cry out to God and they have to say, but if not, you know, Job, take Job, oldest book in the Bible. Job loses everything, right? His wife's like, curse God and die. And Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will bless the name of the Lord. You look at Habakkuk, who, you know, he, he, he sees all this injustice and, and he says, Lord, please bring justice. And, and, and the Lord's like, you know what, actually, your nation's going to fall. There's going to be famine. And Habakkuk says, though the fig tree doesn't bud, there's no grapes on the vine, the crops fail, though we are decimated, yea, I will rejoice in the Lord. What about you? What's the prayer you walked in with this morning? We all have one. Are you ready to say, but if not? Lord, heal me, but if not. Lord, restore my marriage, but if not. Lord, give me work, 
but if not. Lord, bring me a companion, but if not. And the reason why it's so important to say, but if not, is because when we say, but if not, we are taken immediately back to God himself, who in a garden cried out, if there's some way that this cup might pass, but if not, your will be done. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of worship. You're worthy of worship on days when our universe makes sense, and you're worthy of worship on days when we can't figure it out. And you're even worthy of worship on those days when we cry out, and it seems that there's silence from heaven. We ask, Lord, that we would learn from these saints, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, who in the face of incredible, an incredible situation, abandon themselves to you. May we also abandon ourselves to you. And in so doing, Lord, pass through the fire of whatever it is and feel your fellowship because, Lord, you know what it is to cry out. But if not, amen.